0: to Avi's Conversational Corner, a podcast on history, culture, and politics in a broad perspective. I am your host, Avi Wolf. You can find this and other episodes like it on Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Spotify. And you can help support the podcast through Patreon. It was a time of rapid, terrifying, and exhilarating change. A time of scientific breakthroughs, mass politics, endless scandals, and efforts at reform. A time when new groups of Americans fought for and sometimes won their right to participate fully in American life while others did their best to try and keep America as it was, or as they imagined it to be. With few heroes, many villains, great geniuses, and piercing questions, many of which still trouble us today. Welcome to Stumbling Colossus, a regular part of Avi's conversational corner covering the Gilded and Progressive Ages of the United States, from the end of the Civil War to the end of the First World War. This episode's topic, a glorious and terrible aftermath, the Grand Army of the Republic and Civil War veterans in the Gilded Age. The Gilded Age was very much a post-war era, with American society and politics living in the shadow of the triumph and tragedies, promise and perils brought on by the Civil War. The question of what America was, is, and should become was asked not just by progressives and capitalists, but also hundreds of thousands of Union Army veterans. And the largest of their organizations for doing so was the Grand Army of the Republic, or the GAR. But what was the GAR? A benevolent society, a social club, A political lobby or cultural advocacy group? All of the above? And how did white and black veterans in this integrated, in this partially integrated army, see their shared past and future? With me to discuss these questions and more is Professor Barbara Gannon of the University of Central Florida, author of The One Cause Black and White Comradeship in the Army of the Republic. Barbara, welcome. Thank you. So let's start with the basics. What exactly was the Grand Army of the Republic? How did it get started? Uh, What was its purpose uh, from beginning to end?
1: Well, it's interesting because it happened right after the war, what I call the first GAR started. There's actually sort of two. GAR 1 began right after the war in 1866. It began in Illinois, and it was just one organization what will be called a post, a grassroots veterans organization that will be in thousands of cities and towns across the United States. So a small group of men formed it. Now what happened between say 1866 and 1877, or maybe a little later, the group formed. And a lot of times it was fairly political, and some have accused it of being a arm of the Republican Party. And it sort of died, not completely, but largely. For example, in Indiana, it disappeared. In some places like Massachusetts, it held on as an organization. So 1880 comes, and there is a rebirth of the organization. But everyone said, well, we died of politics, so we won't do politics again. What we'll do is we'll be a social fraternal charitable organization. Their slogan, fraternity, charity, and loyalty. So in the 80s, that's how they identified themselves. Now, were they political? Yes, still, but they were what we would call a lobbying group. They weren't partisan in the sense they might have been in their first incarnation. Instead, what they were was, we will lobby for veterans' pensions, and whoever supports those has our support. Now, of course, there were many Republicans, and sometimes it did play a role in local organization, but in my sort of... Micro research I found that T.A.R. posts had Democrats, and they tended to just advocate for sort of like way our organization of retired citizens lobbies for Social Security. So it was a political yes, but in this modern way. So what happened was it became an organization that, at the grassroots level, was posts and everyone who had a honorable discharge from the Union slash United States Army could join. Now, there was also a social element in that if you were a disreputable person, they might keep you out with a black ball, but everyone was eligible. So there was the post and every state had its own GAR, which is where the interesting things really happened. And there was a sort of a national GAR. It was an organization that met once a year and it would it would set the policy for the nation. So you have to see, though, that this was an enormously powerful organization because at its height, it had over 400,000 members. There's no real equivalent in Gilded Age America. There are organizations that are fraternal organizations. This is the mother of all political organizations. You also have to understand that American veterans organizations, which are kind of unusual in the world for their political power, like the American Legion, consciously mold themselves after this group.
0: Okay, so before we follow up on uh, this great introduction, I thought I might ask a bit because I read both your your own book uh, and the book by uh, Stuart McConnell, which is also a the a, a survey of this history. And they sort of kind of skip over uh, this stage one. I was wondering because I think this is going to come up later. What exactly how how exactly was the GAR so political in such a way that everybody felt in the second stage that it was a hot stove? What did they do? They they rallied republicans they argued for the party platform uh what exactly did they do that made everybody so averse in the second stage
1: well they consciously advocated for republicans and they would support them like one of the things that we don't understand about their political culture which is different from ours is there were things like parades parades are very key and so they would be involved in them they would have a membership that was the same as say a young republicans they were very partisan and not all of them because remember the gar as we talk about it it's very much a local and state organization many of its members consciously advocated for the republican party agenda and it's um and it's partisan politicians, i.e. they would support directly people in elections. Now, some of this may have been overstated, because remember, in some ways, the Civil War isn't over. There is sort of this low level insurgency between the North and the South to define what America will be. And the political parties are very much lined up that way. So the Democrats would go to the ends of the earth to say that the GAR was totally political, but that may not have been completely true, but there is enough evidence that the GAR tended to support Republican platforms and the Republican uh, Republican um, politicians.
0: Following up on that again, because I think it's gonna come up later, What were their views in this first stage on the efforts at reconstruction and military protection of the rights of black American freedmen? How hard did they fight for that or talk about that?
1: Well, here's the interesting thing. This is one of those historical things that us historians understand. There was a great fire in 1871 in Boston, and it destroyed a lot of the early records. Not all of them. But that's one of the reasons why people tend to skim it over. I found some things. Like for example, Massachusetts GAR stayed very even that was where the national headquarters was. Was mm-hmm. the national records. They tended to um they tended to be very strong and they did not disappear. So what you have is that what is recorded tends to be no different than the line the GAR will have, which is a strong advocacy of what they feel they won in the Civil War.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: They would tend not to record if they were doing something um, that was completely partisan. Mm -hmm. Their records are often, we all fought for this and we all, we have a united nation of free men and they tended to support uh, the Republican platform on things and uh, but they they did so not in a overtly political way at the national level
0: okay now that we've gotten stage one out of the way to the extent that we can manage whatever evidence we have um yes. stage two i am a union <laughs> army veteran either white or black whatever race whatever religion. How do I go about uh, setting up or joining my local post and what could I expect to, how could I expect to benefit from being a member?
1: Okay. Now, there's two things you can do. You co- you are in a city or town that has an established post and you can apply to it. Now, you, when you do so, they will take your application and the members will vote. It's a black ball system. In the early part of the organization, when the posts were bigger, you could maybe get one black ball out of 20 voters, but not two. So, you pass the blackball system and you're welcomed. Would they blackball people? Absolutely. Um, Drunks. They hated people who had a reputation that were drinkers that would, in some way, sully their reputation. Way too. You've moved to a town, maybe you don't like the post. Sometimes the post is composed of Germans and you don't speak German. It's not really a prejudice thing, but there are German posts that did their rituals in German or there's an elite post and you're an immigrant. A perfect example is New Haven, Connecticut. They had a very large post and it was very broadly supported and had many different types of members. the foot post. There was a German post, So eventually what forms is kind of a new, somewhat lower class immigrant post of various sorts. So sometimes people would form their own post and you could get a charter. You'd write to the state, dear Connecticut, we would like to form a post here and we have X number of veterans and would you send an inspector to charter us? So you'd form a new post. So they would send an inspector from the state and he would be mainly inspecting that everyone had an honorable discharge. They would inspect the discharge papers and say, okay, you, 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 and I've had copies of charters and you would set up your post. Now, in some cases, the posts were uh, various religions or really more ethnicities and races. But there were all-black posts formed by black veterans who asked the state to form their post. The state did not form a post. It was a grassroots effort and request by local veterans.
0: So now that I've established a post and I've joined one, whether based on my own group or because or or it's a uh, it's a mixed post. Uh, uh, with different kinds of Americans uh, what what kind of social or economic benefits would I get out of being a member of the post?
1: Okay. well, economic, one of the things that would happen is there's a few things. okay, first, you have particularly if it's a post of different classes, i e some better off Americans than others. they might be a way of networking for better jobs. I particularly saw this in like Massachusetts integrated posts that the black veterans tended to have like a job as a custodian at school, Um, something that someone made sure you had. So there's that economic benefit. But there's also another real benefit. You want a pension, which becomes the big centerpiece of GAR. The GAR people there would support you. They would get you in touch with a pension lawyer. It would be put in state and national GAR um, general orders that there is private John Doe in Massachusetts, contact him, anyone who knows of his service and wartime injury. So you have this network of people, a place you could ask for support for your pension. Black veterans, for example, who had some issues with pensions, had less if they were GAR members. Mm-hmm. And the GAR would, of course, um, use its political clout to call the local congressman and say, just like you would now here, and say, You're going to do something about pri- Private John Doe's pension, aren't you? And the congressman would say, Yes, I will. And socially, honestly, it doesn't matter what you do. Say you're that custodian, you are a GAR member. You are an honored member of the community. When you die, often, Um, Black members would, whether integrated or not, their post would have it open in the newspaper. That's very common. You would be an honored member of your community, either in the North, of course, and you would be an honored member in the African-American community because you are the great, you are the ones that gave them freedom. So either way, it's enormously prestigious to be in the G.A.R., and so there
0: are a lot of benefits. You mentioned pensions. Uh, this uh, this came up not only when I read uh, the uh, your book and uh, McConnell's book, but also in general discussions uh, of fe- what the federal government did in this period. There were basically three things: they fought over the size of the tariff, they fought over whether or not to federally subsidize, you know, railroads and harbors and bridges, and they fought over how to how to allocate. Um, pensions to civil war veterans and it was a really acrimonious debate it reminds me mutatis mutandis of the debate over the welfare state today where some people wanted to limit pensions only to if you could prove you sustained injuries during war um, whatever injury however one defines an injury and then there was the far more sweeping far more universal argument whereby soldiers were owed pension and support simply by their service even if they suffered injuries after the war where did the gar from the beginning say we take the more expensive version or did they take a while to uh move from the more restrictive one
1: um well pensions are so complicated there could be a book done on those alone okay the short version if you can yes in the beginning The G.A.R. would not. In fact, there was always a lot of fights, even when they were pushing toward what we call a service pension. You serve, you get the you get a pension. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of opposition to that within the G.A.R., particularly the New York G.A.R. Okay, here's the other issue. There's a third category no one talks about. They talk about everyone gets it because of their service. Everyone gets it because of some service related injury. What, if you read very closely what a lot of GAR men are saying, is there are many things that were not, we are not able to trace to the war that we are suffering from today. For example, PTSD, which everyone talks about. It's very obvious, despite the fact they don't know psychology, that's what they're talking around. People whose nerves were broken during the war. For example, another one is age. Um, The fact that you you had some kind of injury during the war and you were fine for a while, but as you aged, it got worse. And the great killer, and this is the irony that no one wants to talk about, diarrhea and other chronic illnesses. Now, I know this is very hard to believe, but the Union Army does not have good medical records. It had some, and you can see them. But we talk about all the people who died of disease in the war. I always say there's a category called lived of disease. Union soldiers are often, if they were long campaigners, are never healthy. And for a while, they might manage to work. But age always catches up with them, particularly rheumatism. Diarrhea gets worse. There's no cure. And you can't work. A lot of them are manual laborers. So the GAR is aware as, and this is a pattern throughout American history, that there's a set of things you can't trace back. They weren't as bad or no one recorded it. So this is what the GAR would say. Let's have this discussion. Well, you're right, but if we give everyone a pension, we'll make sure everyone who can't trace it back to their service will get something. Unstated, well, okay, some people will get what they don't deserve, but there's so much suffering of people who can't. Now, exacerbating all of this, and one final point, this is a partisan issue. The Democrats not only don't believe in spending money, they also have the South, that's where their base is. And they're not getting any federal pension, the Confederate veterans. The Republicans want to spend money and they also want to spend the money a way to spend money from the tariff so they can justify it but they also have the union veterans as their base in the north so it becomes more than about in america the usual debate of pensions which is and this is a very constant one you don't deserve a pension for service because you did what was expected of you Hmm. plus The overarching issues of the horror of the Civil War, which has left millions of Americans who have PTSD, diarrhea, which will kill them, rheumatism, which means they can't work, and all of these other diseases that they never fully recovered from just campaigning, even if they didn't fight. So that's the complication of it.
0: That's a very good summary. Um, I thought I might use this as a chance to segue uh, into the next section of this interview. Uh, You talk a lot in your book, uh, and rightly so, about how the veterans of the GAR, and no doubt veterans who didn't join the GAR, spent a lot of time trying to tell themselves and tell their comrades that their suffering, but as you mentioned, really meant something. It was really worth it. To quote uh, Lincoln, they did not die or suffer in vain. Uh, I was wondering if you could... You know, succinctly tell us, like, what was the broad approach of the broad majority of soldiers who spoke at the GAR regarding what the Civil War meant for them and for the country?
1: All right. This is what they said. This would be a standard template speech. Some people would say, um, some people would say one thing and there'd be extremes, but let's talk about the generic. We suffered. I know our family suffered on long campaigns, in hospitals, and actually battles weren't always first, and in battle. And we still suffer today from these. But you know, when we went into the war, we thought we were just preserving the Union. But we realized you can't preserve the Union unless it's a Union of free men. So we preserved the Union, and we freed the slaves. Liberty and Union, now and forever, Just as we learned in grammar school, they would say by Daniel Webster, one and forever inseparable. And that's what the typical GAR men thought. We have come up with a false dichotomy of fighting for union and fighting for freedom. They who had lived through a war caused by the secession of slave owners to protect slavery. Mm -hmm. And then they went down and saw slavery personally said, "Well." It doesn't matter how you feel about slavery. We could not save the Union, and then they would say, "And you know what? We were we were wrong in the beginning, but we're absolutely right. We are a nation of free men, and we are going on to a greater future as uh, a symbol of liberty for the world." That is a standard GAR speech.
0: Wow! So. Given that that was the standard GAR speech, and you also mentioned in your book, and it makes a lot of sense that, uh, at least at first, reconciliation wasn't really a thing for a lot of veterans. How exactly, because both you and McConnell mentioned how in the 1890s, you have some sort of contradictory trends. On the one hand, the GAR is very angry at the fact that um, lost cause style school textbooks are starting to make it make their way up north and to Tell the Civil War either from a neutral perspective or even from a positive perspective from the South. And they're even fighting for things like uh, putting the American flag on schools. And on the other hand, it is taking a pace that they're trying that a lot of Americans, including some, although I'm sure you'll tell me how many veterans are saying, well, we'll join hands across the Mason-Dixon line. How did the average GAR soldier feel? And how did the average black uh, J.A.R. Soldier feel about uh, all of this?
1: Well, it's interesting, because you'll have to go back to the partisan divide, and that era was still about the Civil War. When everyone talks about reunion, the real advocates were Southerners, of course, but also Northern Democrats. And here's the thing. Once a war is over, the day the war is over, someone is born, and they have no memory of the war for someone who was a child in the war. So it's a very much a generational memory issue. So by 1890, you have many people who don't remember the war. Mm -hmm. But the people who do, when you talk about the Civil War generation, and I think um, Keith Harris captured it very well. Keith Harris wrote a book about reconciliation that I would have written if I wanted to spend that much time documenting The ridiculous anti-reunionism of the G.A.R., they constantly hated the lost cause, hated hated everything. Mm -hmm. They would have blown those monuments up today themselves. This is the G.A.R.'s view. We're all Americans now, and it's all a union. And we do not begrudge the soldiers who fought against us. We forgive them. But there was the most wrongest cause any human being ever fought for. They started the war to defend the barbaric institution of slavery. And we will never acknowledge that they were our equals. They are traitors, particularly their leaders. Very standard, constant interpretation. Were there veterans who might have disagreed? Absolutely. But the ones constantly, they say that, very few of them, have any, this whole equality of cause, fighting for honor, all brave Americans, they would speak against that well into the 20th century. They completely rejected
0: it. That actually brings up an important point uh, that McConnell brings up and that you somewhat allude to is that as opposed to the Confederate veterans organizations, which had like a sons of Confederate veterans things, The G.A.R. sort of froze itself in time. In other words, they didn't have succeeding generation um, organizations. And that strikes me as kind of um, shooting themselves in the foot, because like you said, succeeding generations didn't experience the war. They needed people or at least descendants of people to continue to tell the story, to continue to fight for their version. And by sort of freezing themselves in amber to a single generation, they sort of defeated their own purpose, it seems to me.
1: Well, the GAR did have a successor organization. It was never as powerful. The Sons of Union Veterans of the Civil War. Ah, They're still here. Okay. There was a daughter of Union Veterans of the Civil War. Now, we have to, again, leave our all-male conversation. In Civil War memory, you must leave the men behind and Mm -hmm. go visit the women. Okay. The Sons of Confederate Veterans honestly weren't the powerhouses. It was the United Daughters of the Confederacy. Mm -hmm. What happens is the women take over this debate. Mm -hmm. The GAR was not debating with the Sons of Confederate Veterans. They were fighting the United Daughters of the Confederacy, who were uh, making memory. Now, they had their own organization, the Women's Relief Corps, and they advocated for what I call the one cause, W-O-N. But they never were the United Daughters of the Confederacy, because United Daughters of the Confederacy, you have to remember, was very much lockstep with what Southerners wanted to done, particularly as a way of shaping a civil war narrative that would allow them to control what we called in US the race problem.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So a lost cause narrative facilitated and met the needs of Southerners at the turn of the century. Now here's where things get sticky. In the North, that's completely false. The North, was beginning to rise to its imperial destiny, particularly after the Spanish American War. Reminding people of dark skinned people and the fight for freedom did not suit anyone's needs, particularly Republicans. Remember, they had always defended this, who were the real imperialists. To keep American politics in mind, they go to be the real imperialists. They're the Teddy Roosevelts. Mm-hmm. So, in fact the one cause understood went against everything both northerners and southerners saw as their best interest and their need now one thing about memory and i study memory a lot what wins is what suits people's needs Mm -hmm. and so northerners will eventually embrace the lost cause and this sort of equality of purposes because we're all white americans And we have lots of wars, and we sort of embrace the Confederate military heritage. Mm -hmm. As illustrated by the names of our posts, Mm -hmm. which stayed Confederate generals until two weeks ago. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But it's not so much. The GAR, it's really the successor organizations that fight it out. The GAR makes it stand. Mm -hmm. What the GAR did that was unusual was unlike... Um, the organizations, most organizations today, they did not allow people from new wars to join. Mm-hmm. But I don't know how much that would have made a difference because those wars were different. And they said that, and I kind of get it, though it did mean that the G.A.R. died when the last member died, which was 1956. But they weren't powerful as the decade goes on. There are more wars. There's World War, There's the Spanish-American War, critical. World War I. World War II, Korea, other generations of veterans come in to the veteran, um, to veteranhood, to mm-hmm. being recognized as American veterans. Mm-hmm. But it's really, you have to switch out when you go Civil War memory, say at the turn of the century, it's about women and what they do.
0: Mm. Okay, that makes a lot of sense and it definitely puts an interesting spin on things. Uh, While we're talking about the question, uh, in addition to the fight over the memory of the Civil War and its meaning, um, both you and McConnell mentioned how the GAR was very, I guess you might call it standoffish, towards what were contemporary political battles, such as contemporary battles over civil rights, contemporary battles over labor or immigration. They tended to not stay away as much as possible from those questions. And that, to me, at least, is another example. I can understand if you want to take a more broad-based view, but not taking a stand at all kind of, it makes you neutral, but also kind of makes you irrelevant in what America is becoming. And ostensibly, this is an organization that was deeply concerned about what America was, is, and will be. So why was it that they were so incredibly gun-shy?
1: One, some were gun-shy from the political charges that killed the first GAR, and you will read that. Now, they they were not um, out of immigrants. They say, well, we need to teach immigrants about real Americanism, which includes the union cause, freedom and opportunity for everyone. So they're not neutral. And their women's organizations also advocated a kind of patriotism and a patriotic education that would bring immigrants. They weren't in any way Mm anti-immigrant, unlike something you'll see 30 years from then, They wanted them taught Americanism. Mm -hmm. Now, when it came to civil rights, here's the issue. They would often say and take um, stands. The state would, or the black post would stand at the state meeting. The national GAR refused because to them, that was politics and they were frightened And they also knew, did not want to alienate, and this is key, any government official who might get help them get the pension. Mm -hmm. It always goes back to the pension. So they try to stay neutral on those issues. Individual states and posts definitely protested. But that dies out. And part of the reason it dies out is something natural in the human being as they aged and came closer to death themselves and saw their friends dying they wanted to be satisfied with what they had accomplished age and mortality tends not to be for most people a time to think wow i really messed that up <laughs> i'm not leaving a legacy behind they believed their legacy was a nation of free men where they have freed the slaves And everyone was free and had an opportunity. And remember, most of the worst laws are in the southern states, and the GAR isn't very strong there. It really hides. The people there did not see, they looked at their states. So there's a lot of things going on, but there's a certain kind of human memory when you look back on your life. And I found this very common. They wanted to think that their life had made a difference, a positive difference and they weren't as Mm self-critical of what had been accomplished there was one uh, gar man uh, uh, named tanner and he spoke for them often and at one point he says he goes even if you if you what is he he said even if you pronounce the n-word with two g's and he didn't say n-word he said he said, you cannot not acknowledge the accomplishments of our nation and Black people and all they've accomplished since then. So they were saying that no matter what people's racist attitudes were, the nation had changed and it was better. And no, they weren't self-critical at 70 or 80. It was really, I always say, it's very difficult to hold them and people, one poor person said I let them off the hook. No, they're old men who've given their lives and their youth to a most worthy project. Are we still going to criticize them for what they didn't do decades later when the real key players were the next generation? They just weren't. They were sort of relics that were in parades.
0: Well, yeah. Um... From my talk with you and uh, from my enjoying of your book and uh, those of other histories i've very much come to appreciate how much they are less a relic than a monument uh not just of heroism and bravery in the face of a noble cause but also of democratic uh, self-government and self-assembly and i very much enjoyed this talk professor gannon thank you for coming on it's been a pleasure I'd like to once again remind my listeners that you can listen to this podcast on Google Podcasts, Amazon, and Spotify, and you can support the podcast on Patreon. See you all next time at Avi's Conversational Corner.